Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirstie McGuire, Executive Director of PE Win. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network also known as P.E. Win, We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. P.E. Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of P.E. Win, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation, and serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to the latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm your host, Kelly Williams, the founding chair of the Private Equity Women's Investor Network, as well as the CEO of the William Legacy Foundation. And I'm delighted that today, as our guest, I have my dear friend, Andrea Kramer. I was thinking today, Andrea, we've known each other, gosh, probably 20 years. Um, And what kind of sets, in my mind, what sets our friendship apart is we were always competitors, but... I never felt that way. Not that, not that it wasn't a worthy competition, but we've always been friends and I've always, you know, admired you and respected you. And, um, so I think that's kind of a unique thing among women. And so maybe that's something we'll talk a little bit about today. But for those of you, you who don't know, uh, Andrea Kramer has had a very distinguished career in private equity. She is the co-head of fund investments at Hamilton Lane, as well as the chief executive officer of Hamilton Lane Solutions Holdings. Is that right? Did I get that right? Okay. Uh, Which is close. You'll correct me. Um, And which is the publicly listed vehicle, correct, for Hamilton Lane. So that's very exciting. And I remember seeing the video of you at NASDAQ ringing the bell. And so that uh, that was really, really an exciting moment for all of us, but particularly for the women in the private equity industry. And so, Andrea, welcome. I'm delighted to have you here. Oh, same. I'm so happy to be here, Kelly. Um, It's wonderful to see you, uh, albeit by Zoom, and um, to be here with you today. Um, You've been an inspiration uh, to many women across the industry, and I'm, you know, thrilled to have you as a friend and uh, to be part of PE Win. and and, uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Great. Well, and you've been with PE Win since the very beginning. You were sort of part of our founding core, so... You Sitting know that table, yeah. Right, that table, the infamous table where we had tea, I think, uh, and, yeah. and came up with our plan for world domination. Exactly. Um, 
Well, hearkening back to beginnings, what I want to do is start where we always do with our guests, which is at the beginning, and ask you to maybe spend a few minutes telling us a little bit about yourself and how you grew up. Sure. I'm happy to do that. I was uh, born and raised in a suburb in Northeast Philadelphia. So I'm a Northeast Philly gal. Uh, I have... um, was raised in a what I would describe as a pretty middle-class suburban neighborhood, uh, went to school at the local public school, and, um, and I was uh, raised by uh, uh, an immigrant who uh, came to the U.S. kind of late 30s, and so I was first generation. Um, I went to F&M uh, for my economics degree, for an undergrad degree, and then I went to the local, um, to Temple University for my graduate degree for an MBA. And when you say raised by an immigrant, if I remember co- correctly, you're fluent in Spanish, correct? Well, more or less, uh, I was always required to understand what was being said to me, but to communicate back in English so that he could really improve his language skills. And as we'll talk about in my early career, some of it was editing and proofreading and preparing speeches just to make sure that uh, his speeches sounded great. That's great. You know, that I had a similar experience in my family. My mother's side of the family are Italian. And uh, as she was growing up, and even as I was growing up, because I, I spent a lot of my childhood there, my great-grandparents all spoke Italian, but we were expected to speak English. <laughs> so uh, they wanted, and, and so interestingly enough, you know, their their kids and their, particularly their grandchildren, didn't really learn Italian. I speak what I call menu Italian, um, which is the most important thing anyway. You have to be exactly. able to order food. Um, well, great. So tell us, um, what was your first job, your very first job? Yeah, I had I had a lot of jobs. I mean, I started working literally at the age of 12. I think I started as a babysitting. I've done candy striping. I probably had every job that you could imagine before the age of 16. My first real job was uh, working at The Limited. Right. It opened up at the local mall, which is the Willow Grove Mall, and everyone was totally ecstatic about this this brand and about the opportunity to buy clothes there. So I got a job. Uh, I'd never done sales in a clothing store before, and it was a pretty illuminating experience. It was exciting, and I learned a little bit about fashion, which for me, um, I still have to learn more about fashion, um, but it was a lot of fun and I uh, had a great experience. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I start like you, I started with lots of little jobs, but um, I, I had my first, uh, I wouldn't be say my first real job, but one of my early jobs was at a store called Steinbox, which was at the local mall, which was brand new back when we were growing up. Malls were kind of new. Exactly. And um, uh, yeah, that was really cool. I, I got to, you know, merchandise some of the mannequins and things like that. And yes, it felt very I felt very, uh, very cool at the time. Um, well, so at any point in your early career, whether studying in college or um, any other experiences, did you learn about private equity as a potential career? And and kind of when did you decide that that might be a direction you'd want to go in? Yeah, I after, you know, my parents being uh, the the daughter of an immigrant, really wanted me to be in the healthcare field, right? You had to be a doctor. You had to have a doctorate degree. You had to make sure that, you know, you had something that no one could take from you. And we can get into that story going forward. And I just, I 
didn't really, I struggled with it. So during my undergrad, I actually ended up um, switching careers and moved into the business space, into economics. Right after college, I went to work for a law firm in Midtown Manhattan as a legal intern because I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to get my uh, degree in medicine, but maybe, you know, my father's other option was, well, you'll be a lawyer. So I spent about a year and a half doing that and realized I needed to be on the other side of the table. I, it was, you know, it was very draining. I learned how to redline the old school way, you know, you used to use the ruler and the red ink. And if you made a mistake, you had to go redo every single piece of the document. And I thought, no, uh, I really want to do the strategic stuff that I hear people talking about as I'm sitting in the corner. And uh, I went back to graduate school and really it was in my first semester that I heard about this thing called venture capital and buyouts. And I thought, you know, and Nabisco was literally down the road. So you kind of knew about the Nabisco takeover behind the scenes, seeing it and hearing about it in the neighborhood. And I thought, this is an extraordinary thing. I would love the opportunity to do some real business building. You know, I'm a naive 20-year-old. I have no idea what that means, but I'm totally enthusiastic and enthused about the idea of, could I be part of this venture capital thing? So I honestly reached out to every venture capital firm on the face of the earth, probably everything that I could find in the mid-Atlantic region, which by the way, back then was not something you could just Google. You had to like go to the library, get out this book called, I think it was called the Pratt's book. And you literally had to look at every single partnership. And so I, that's what I did. I got my first analyst job while I was still in graduate school and it was amazing. It was extraordinary. I'll stop there, but it was a lot of fun and I learned it early. So this is all I know how to do, by the way, Kelly. Beyond all the jobs I had up until I went to grad school, I've done nothing else. And I told my kids, like, I think I could go back and work the limited if I weren't working in private equity because I don't know anything else. And then, of course, <laughs> my kids say to me, Mom, there's no store limited anymore. Okay. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. Well, I, you know, I really admire the fact that you figured out early on that you wanted to be on the other side of the table when you were at that law firm. Because, of course, I'm trained as a lawyer. I, you know, I always knew from the time I was a little girl that I wanted to be a lawyer. And, gosh, I remember doing the redlining, um, learning it, but luckily having paralegals who could do it because they were much better than me. But but it followed me through my life because I became infamous in my my firm of marking up papers in red pen. And I, you know, I didn't realize how angry I sounded just by the color of ink I was using. So I was advised by my team that uh, perhaps I, I should use something else. But you were smart to learn that you really wanted to be a client um, and not be the lawyer. That That is a much better gig, I think. Um, yeah. I And I remember, even though I worked in, in you know, financial law, I you know, I knew mergers and acquisitions and, and leverage buyouts, but I didn't quite understand how that all worked together. Um, so you, great for you that you went out and actually did the research and, and figured it out. Uh, but I'm sure there are lots of other things that you could do if you, really, if you felt the need to do it. Um, and so, you know, when you think about uh, having made that, that choice and done the research to, to go into venture capital, how, you know, would you say kind of your early upbringing, your early experiences, the, the things that you said your, your parents said to you about 
having something people couldn't take away from you. How did that play into your career path? Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. Um, you know, as I mentioned, my dad was, um, you know, really came to the U.S. quite late in life. He uh, was raised by a single parent and he had to, in many ways, be the head of his household along with his mom. And so he understood the challenges uh, that, you know, would be there for me and for my sisters, because I was one of three, uh, three daughters that he had um, that really needed to be able to kind of take control and make sure that in, in, in a challenging situation, I could make do and I could really um, be successful on my own. And that we all needed to get a great education as a result of that. We, we needed to have a degree and we needed to have a job, something that would give us some form of security going forward. Now, mind you, I went into this thing called venture capital, which, of course, was probably the highest risk thing he could possibly imagine. And he's like, you're a ship with no port. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're going to do. And, you know, I think as they look back now at my career path, um, it was, you know, there were a lot of periods of angst and unknowns and potential perils, of course, from his perspective. But, you know, they look at it today and say, wow, you know, you did amazing. Of course, I all my other sisters have gone into medicine. So <laughs> I was the one that created the most angst for that for that family. But the reality is that I think it set me up in a way that really enforced the importance of education and, and the importance of, you know, really working hard. I would also say that, you know, this is a male dominated environment, no doubt. And so I didn't really have anybody else to look to for, you know, mentoring or for support, at least in the early days, and, or people that looked like me to kind of understand how this career could, um, this career path, you know, what it would look like, what was the tra trajectory. And as a result of that, I really just kind of had to muscle my way through it. Um, in a lot of ways, I took the, m my my view of how my father built his career and all the the challenges and the pitfalls that he had along the way and really just, you know, was incredibly um, in some ways forceful about and intense about um, progression, particularly in the early days. Because again, you know, when you're 20 years old and you're coming into an, an industry you know nothing about, my parents, you know, again, had no knowledge of anything beyond medicine. I was really forced to, um, you know, to learn it all on my own and to look outwardly within the industry for, for mentors, which I did. You know, I had a wonderful mentor um, in my first analyst job, which was incredibly helpful. Uh, and in a lot of ways, he helped kind of help me navigate this path and set it up for myself. But, you know, it, it was with, not without challenges. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting what you're, you're describing reminds me a bit of my experience as well, because my, you know, my dad um, had two daughters and my dad is a very, you know, he's a former police officer. He's a big macho guy. Um, and, but he had two daughters. And yeah. so he didn't treat us any differently than he would have treated his sons. And he certainly never had expectations for us as girls that would have been different than the expectations he would have had for his son. Wow. So I never once, you know, heard my dad say, well, you're a woman, you can't do that. He expected us to do that. And so I think that played over into going to school and having a career saying, well, I 
there's no reason I can't do it. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a woman, except when someone else would make it an issue, right? Or yeah. I would be treated differently because I was a woman. But it wasn't, it wasn't because of the way I was socialized growing up. And it sounds like it was, it was that for you as well. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, his uh, original heritage is uh, also Italian. So I'm primarily Italian. So I, I appreciate that there are a lot of similarities. And of course, having three girls, he was kind of like, what, what happened? <laughs> How did this happen to me? But he, no doubt, really, he raised us the exact same way, which is you can do it. And um, having seen a single parent uh, and the experience that his own mother had, he knew that we had to be able to to survive all of this on our own and and potentially completely on our own. Um, you know, given circumstances. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it really does inform you and it leaves an indelible print. And in many ways, um, it forces you to really work harder because what he enforced, uh, you know, in a lot of those conversations was that you a lot of times needed to prove that you, you know, you should be at the table, that no one could take this away from you. You are you not just deserve to be at the table, but you're an essential part of that table. And so that's a lot of what I've tried to impart to, um, you know, people that I, the, the team that I work with, particularly the young women that sit at the table. You know, it's not just lean in. It's make sure that you're part of that conversation and that you're engaged and and very much essential to that conversation. So, right. you know, he, he, he basically messaged work 150 percent of the time. Uh, you know, 50, make sure it's 50% more than everybody else. Yeah. It's interesting that you describe it that way because one of, um, I always point to one of the best messages I ever received was from someone who I wouldn't necessarily consider a mentor because it was, he was one of the worst people I ever worked for. But one of the things he communicated to me, this was back when I was practicing law, he called me his lifestyle, meaning I was the work that I did and the fact that he could trust me allowed him to have a lifestyle, meaning he could go home to his family, he could be home on the weekends. And so what I learned very early in my career was that if you, be, as a young person, if you become essential, uh, if you understand your job is to make your boss look good, they become very invested in you and very invested in your career. Um, and, and so I always tell people, because I think young people are always looking for, you know, when can I get promoted? When, you know, when, when am I in charge? And I always say, wait, no, no. If you take the time to be invested in someone, make sure you pick the person who's really good, um, but make them look good, make them succeed. They'll bring you along. But the, the, the pivot point, and it's a particularly hard one for women, is um, when do you go from being the person who's supporting to being the person who's taking the lead. And so that's really kind of my next question for you. Are there, are there certain seminal moments in your career that you think about that helped you make those, those moves into senior leadership? Yeah, it is a, it, it is a very tough change. And it, that is an incredibly good point. Um, what I've tried to do is lead by example, which, you know, in many cases, is harder because you have to find ways to ensure that people understand that, you know, that I am the leader and, and you need to, you know, you need to move forward with the project or the work or, you know, whatnot. Um, but oftentimes I think women struggle more so than, than most with breaking themselves out of either their peer group 
or out of the 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 work the the worker kind of mentality and how to rise above that and become the leader or the manager in charge it is a really tough thing and i you know i have a wonderful um person on the team who started as an analyst and it was one of the biggest challenges that she had as she moved from an analyst role to a senior associate role and was ultimately in charge of people at leading people and oftentimes they were people who were came in in the same class with her she really struggled with well I'm no longer really their friend I'm now their manager and how do I how do I make that shift you know I've done it uh, oftentimes is really focusing on the team first and prioritizing the people and not really thinking about me. I mean, unfortunately, I think that's also a, a reflection of being a woman that we think about the group and the team before we think about ourselves. And in my case, I actually think about the company and, you know, HL here, I have prioritized the company over myself. So I'm constantly finding I have this inner tension that I've got to periodically say, no, 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 remember me <laughs> somewhere in all of this. And it is a real, it's a day-to-day -day challenge and it doesn't ever go away. I mean, I'm sure you've perfected it. And I, I look to, to uh, other, you know, I listen and read uh, on autobiographies and biographies on other women who have been successful and, and want to hear it in the podcast as much as possible to learn from, you know, how do people at this, at the senior levels, how do these women do it? Um, it is a pretty extraordinary. I'm reading Angela Merkel's book right now. It's not actually her book because she's never given one, but I'm reading a book on her and learning more about her style as well. So it's a constant, you know, never ending, um, you know, learning process uh, in life and, and trying to do it better constantly. That's where I'm that's where I'm constantly at is prioritizing being better and being the best, not just for myself, but, you know, for the team. Yeah. No, I think, um, as you know, because you were there at the table that we talked about, uh, that was really the ethos behind starting the Private Equity Women Investor Network, because we are a network for senior women, because senior women uh, have unique challenges. People often think that once you become a partner or a managing director or a CEO, uh, that, that you've made it and it's all done. And, and there's a whole new set of challenges that occur. It's in my experience, it's one of the most isolating periods of my career because there just aren't a lot of other senior women. And um, people are trying to take you out in unique ways. So, um, so having a network of senior women who kind of know what you're talking about and, and can have those conversations and give you a place to maybe be vulnerable because it's very hard as a senior woman to show any vulnerability. You can't show any chinks in your armor. Um, but as you say, that because there are few, so few examples, particularly in our industry, um, it, it, you do have to make sure that while you're articulating the best path for yourself or the company or, or for your team or the company, that you're keeping yourself in the equation. Yeah, exactly. I, I completely agree. It is, um, you know, PE win has been an extraordinary thing. I think one, because, you know, as I, when I started in this industry, there was almost no women. There were no women at the table. There were no women in the meetings that I went to. As I mentioned, I had no one to look to. P.E. Win, you know, was, I think we had 25 people on the original table, which I was like blown away. <laughs> oh my goodness. These 25 senior women, that's extraordinary. Now, you know, at, at HL, we had 
on the investing side, I mean, I'll admit it was primarily me. Um, we're continuing to develop that and cultivate it, but PUN really created an opportunity for me to develop some really close friendships and a place where I could actually have a conversation say, well, what do you think about this? Because, you know, I'm having this challenge. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it, you know, before that, I will tell you, I had a lot of wonderful mentors and people who would provide a great opportunity to role model, but it was primarily men. Um, when I wanted to, to find a mentor, uh, that were women, I had to go outside of the industry and, yeah. you know, not so necessarily far afield from the industry, but it, you know, I think that it's amazing to me today as I reflect on the fact that 25 people at the table and now 700, I mean, kudos to you and to the, to the broader team that has built this. It's extraordinary. I mean, 700 people. I know we're not, <laughs> I know we're not where we need to be, but I am blown away, um, you know, day to day by how many extraordinary women there are within the industry. And I'm thrilled to have them. You know, you mentioned the competition piece of this at the beginning. I feel like, you know, women as competitors, I, I never really look at another woman as a competitor. I feel like, you know, we're part of a bigger group and the fabric that the PE win type of um, experience provides to us, it's really unique and it's ex incredibly powerful. And now if we could just figure out how to network and leverage these things the way that men do so easily, um, we will we will be unstoppable. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think um, it's interesting because I always had a very unique relationship with your firm, particularly with Mario, because he and I would talk to each other about different mandates where we were being brought in. And I, I think we both always came from the same perspective that we didn't mind competing against people who were doing quality work and yeah. who were ethical. Um, and, you know, we, you win some, you lose some. The problems we always had were when you had this injection of people who were doing really unethical things. And, you know, that that you just can't compete against if that's the yeah. way someone's going to win something. And so, yeah, I agree. My, my, my motto has always been there's enough to go around for everyone. Absolutely. Um, as long as you come at things with with the right uh, value set and ethos and uh, and do quality work for your clients, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that's that's what you're supposed to do. We would like to take a brief break to thank P.E. Wynn's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at Now back to today's guest. Um. You know, I wonder, are there times in your career that you can think of where you were particularly aware of being a woman? I mean, you mentioned the number of meetings in the early days, and I remember those as well. I remember walking into meetings with a woman who was a CIO or something, and she'd be like, you are the first woman I have ever seen. Um, but are there other times when you were particularly made aware that you were the only woman or you were a woman? And how did you, how did you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, you're... You've hit it spot on. It, it happened frequent uh, and very often. And there were some negative elements to it, um, as you can imagine, because people always felt they could either take advantage or talk to you in a way that was really inappropriate. 
Um, you know, I, I, I took a gig in an operating field for a little bit and it was in the energy industry. So you can imagine not only was I only the only woman on the investment team, but I was literally, I mean, I'm the only woman in this, in this company. And, you know, and because I took on an operating role, I would spend some time out in the field and there would be, you know, a lot of bros out there growing it up. And, you know, you need to be able to really roll with the punches and be part of that and assimilate in a way. And it's almost impossible when you have, you know, you're, you're a woman and you've got blonde hair, you stand out. So <laughs> no doubt they took advantage. But I think that the other piece of it was underestimating. I find that, you know, being a woman, particularly in the early days, that it wasn't unusual that people would underestimate me. And that I could use to my advantage uh, as frequent as possible, particularly when negotiating. Um, so if you, you know, if you underestimate me at the start, typically what ends up happening is I'm going to have the ability to negotiate a better deal for the team, for the firm, for the, the, the client that we're working on. And so that has worked to, you know, my benefit historically, I would say less so today, um, which is, which is a good thing, frankly, because I'd really rather not stand out just because of my gender, but it certainly happened very often in the early days. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I used to use that, as you say, to my advantage, because the thing is, if you're the only woman in the room, when you actually start speaking, the heads all snap around because they don't expect you to say anything and certainly yeah. nothing of value. Um, and so I, I found that you could actually garner attention if you were the only woman in the room and you, you, you picked your spots and you made sure that you made your points. And of course, as typical women, we were always overprepared for everything. <laughs> right. Um, right. but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, you're, you made the point before, which I think is an important one, which is many of us, um, even now when there's more women in the industry, many of us have male mentors and have had male mentors and male sponsors. And so you have any observations for people about how to have that relationship and how to make those relationships work best? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to pick the the sponsor or the mentor, as you've as you, as you said, that works for the situation or for their strength and you know your challenges. Um, so I've had I've had a lot of them. I've kind of picked them for how do I how do I prepare you know my presentations more effectively? How do I engage with the team more effectively? How do I become more strategic and more valuable as a leader? I think you have to, you know, you really have to be thoughtful about who those individuals are on the other side of the table and ensure that, you know, you're getting the right person for that specific role or need and then do the work. I mean, that's the other thing. I have a lot of people that I mentor and, you know, we, we have a program here where we set it up and we say, you know, who do you want? And people pick them and it's, it's lovely. So it's kind of self-driven. But, um, you know, my first conversation with that person is have a goal in mind, know what you want to achieve from this, uh, this discussion or this, you know, this relationship and we'll work towards that. And if I'm not the right person to help you get there, we'll find you the right person. That could be my mission. And so I've found that that works incredibly well when we, when we set it up that way. But if you don't have a goal, I mean, you can't kind of happen into an experience. I mean, you can, but it's, it's kind of a lot of work. And, and as you can imagine, all of us are taking on a lot of different initiatives and people and, and we want that to be successful. So, I mean, I think that's, 
that's kind of the big thing. Um, for me, the other one I would point out is, and I just said this to a guy on our team who's one of our senior level um, people, just try to find a mentor outside of the company, right? Find somebody that's not like a known quantity or known element, something that's going to bring something, shake it up for you a little bit, change things, make you see things from a different perspective. That's really important. And, you know, male or female, I actually think that he would benefit from uh, another, you know, another gender or a minority to really give him kind of a different perspective. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that... um there's a lot of times when people from other industries or even or other firms or other positions within the industry look at an issue you're dealing with and, and just can cut straight to the heart of the matter. Um, I always found a lot of times speaking with GPs um, as an LP, as well, we're both sort of LP GPs, a lot of times they would give a perspective that was really helpful. The other thing is um, I find it's really important to have male mentors or, or just male advisors because they can decode things for you. You know, as women, we go into situations and, and we think, you know, this is how something should happen. And a guy can say, oh, no, no, that's not what was going on there, you know, because they can read the ego issues, they can read the bro issues um, and, and give us advice in that regard. I, I found, I, I find that really helpful for people. And so yeah. I think as much as you say, as much as, as women need to have women mentors, and as you know, we've started our partnership with Twigo, with the Twigo Rise program to provide female mentors for women in our industry who don't necessarily have any senior women in their firms mm -hmm. uh, who, who, they can, uh, who they can work with. Um, but I think it's just as important to cultivate those relationships with men. Yeah, I agree great. with you. So what would you point to as, as sort of the highlight of your career to date? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me this question and I was kind of, oh, I don't know. I mean, yeah. there have been so many, but nothing, one thing stands out um, as being extraordinarily, I mean, of course, going public, you know, that's an extraordinary thing, but it's not just my experience, it's the firm's experience. Um, building a team that I think was just, you know, as I look at it today, is extraordinary. I am so thrilled with... Um, Frankly, the people we have here, they are so smart, uh, smarter. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten the job today. I mean, I could be <laughs> completely honest. They are extraordinary people coming from a lot of different walks of life. Uh, you know, we'll need to continue to develop diversity and, and culture because doing it in the last year and, and almost two years now has been incredibly hard. Um, it's hard to build culture in this environment. So I'm I, obviously I'm in the office and, and trying to engage them more and more frequently, but you know, um, the highlights, I, the other thing I would say is, you know, we talked a little bit about mentoring. I am also, um, just in thoroughly enthused as I see like the senior women that we've built here in the team, you know, I mentioned the analysts. She'd moved to another division within the firm, has come back. Extraordinary people. Um, and even the alumni, the women that have departed the firm and have gone on to other places within the, within the, um, you know, within private equity. I am just so incredibly proud of the women and the careers that they've built and the families and the, you know, the ecosystem that they are creating. It's an extraordinary thing. So, I mean, it's like the big picture that, 
I, I just love what I do and I'm absolutely thrilled that I get to do it every single day. So, you know, every day to me, you know, it's every day is not a high moment, obviously, but um, it continues to be. And I'm, you know, I'm have to pinch myself periodically. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, I think that uh, one of the things that I enjoy the most is when the alumni reach out and tell me what they're doing, because I always took the the perspective um, that if people move on, they move on. And, you know, not everybody feels that way. I had a business partner who would be, you know, very vicious when someone would leave. But my view was always, um, I think it reflects well on me and my team that, that people are trying to recruit people away. Uh, and always there are people that you're not sorry to have leave because maybe they were not part of the the, the right addition to your culture. But um, I'm always really proud of my team. And, and it warms my heart when they reach out to me and they I always ask them to send me pictures of their kids and, yeah. um, you know, just keep me posted on what they're doing. And I, that I love that part. I love that part because I it makes you feel like you continue to have an impact and that that if they've been trained well by you, they're going off and making our industry better as well because they're going to take an approach. I mean, I know one of my former partners has his own firm now. He's very focused on diversity. It's like a really important thing to him. And I know it's because he learned that uh, within our group. And I, I know that's happening for you and the people who've worked for you as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we talked a lot about success. And I always think it's instructive to also talk a little bit about when things don't go <laughs> as planned. And that always happens, happens a lot for all of us if you've been in the industry long enough. Is there something that you can point to or an experience that you've had that you think you really learned a lot from and it's 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 instructive and maybe something you share with people? Yeah, it's boy, there's so many of them. <laughs> you know, when you're 30 plus years in a career, it's um, boy, you learn every day. And, and in a lot of ways, the challenges actually go to, you know, they're the ones that build character and really um, make you who you are. I um, remember pretty, it, it was relatively early, maybe a third of the way through my career, I went through a reorganization and it was a pretty big one. And it was one of those moments in my life where, um, you know, I had to recollect what one of my mentors said to me, which was a pretty powerful statement, particularly for me raised, you know, by, um, like I said, a family who felt that you need, you need stability, security. And his point was be brave. Um, and you know, this reorganization either meant I was going to have to find a new opportunity within the firm or I was going to have to reorg myself out. And I was kind of like, okay, you know, I'll just go with the flow and really, you know, focus on what's next and try to be um, strategic about making that next step. And so um, I reorged out. I, I ended up leaving the firm and I uh, made a shift. Um, I would say it was like a, a period of transition where I was really a direct investor, which is what I did for the first, you know, half of my life and moved into the limited partner side of this. So this interim position allowed me to kind of be both. Um, but ultimately, you know, I set myself up for this 17, almost 17 year career that I've had at Hamilton Lane kind of based on that decision. And as I look back on it at the time, it felt really painful. 
I was like, who am I? What am I going to be? Because in so many ways, again, I'd been working since I was 12. Who I was was really a reflection of like the career that I had, the job that I had, the title that I had, which is a terrible thing to say about your ego, but it's, you know, in a lot of ways true. Um, and for everyone, particularly for me in that moment, because I felt like I wasn't really a person or powerful enough without that as a, you know, kind of placard or shield. And I had to push my way through it. And, and I did. And thankfully, as a result of that, you know, I've had a lot of different experiences and a lot of different roles um, that have made me who I am. And it was not a path that was clear to me. I mean, I think that's the other thing. My people ask me all the time, like, how, what's my path? What should it look like? Oh my gosh, I'm not on my path. Like there is no path. <laughs> no you, know, path. You, you kind of have to get lucky and you have to be smart about the choices you make and smart when you don't make the right choices and be okay with both. But, you know, I guess be brave, which, uh, which is, which is what I was. And thankfully I, I, I did make those decisions cause I'm here today. And so I guess that's it. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's, I, I think that's all a perfect example. It's, it's, Interesting. It's similar to um, Jerry Harmon. Uh, when you listen to the Jerry Harmon episode, she talks about having, you know, lost her job, basically being reorged out of a job. And it ended up leading to her starting her own firm. Um, and I'm a firm believer in trust the universe. And a lot of times those things happen because you are not objectively making the decision that you should be making. And so eventually the universe says, okay, we're going to make it for you. <laughs> and, uh, and that, and you just stop doing what you're not meant to do anymore. And it, yeah. it opens up that possibility. And I think for women, you know, we always talk about the fact that women feel like they have to be 80% prepared for something before they take it. And men need 20% preparation. Um, and I, I think that's what you've just described is kind of a good example of just saying, you know, say yes, be brave. If it's interesting to you, walk through the door, right. whatever euphemism you want to use. <laughs> um, but I think each one of us would tell you that that's, that's kind of how you end up in these roles is you have to walk through and trust yourself um, and be brave when those opportunities present themselves. Yeah, it's a great, it's a abs it's absolutely true. I think for almost anyone that's been successful, male or female, but particularly for female, because saying yes is hard um, and it requires work and commitment. And oftentimes people will say no just because they're afraid or they don't think they're right for the role or, you know, you have imposter syndrome, which is pervasive. Um, right. Or, you know, you listen to your dad, just be secure, be stable. <laughs> You right. know, uh, right. you know, I'm okay or, being a ship without a port. <laughs> yeah. Or for women, a lot of times, you know, we start negotiating ourselves out of the job by saying, well, you know, I'm not sure that this is the right work-life balance. And we start asking all of those questions that sabotage us before we even take the job. And the reality is even more so today, as we talked at the beginning, um, things are going to be flexible. <laughs> you know, you can find a way to make things work. Women do yeah. that. And yeah. of course, that's another reason why PE Win was founded was to model what a woman's career could look like in private equity. Yeah, a hundred percent. Absolutely agree with you. That was one of the, you know, I, I've been, you know, I tend to say what I want no matter what. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm to, to a certain extent. I know the way the adjectives that have described me are intense and force of nature. But you know, when I joined here, one of the things that 
and and it's been an amazing ride and experience. One of the things that um, you know my uh, my boss said to me was, "You need do you need mornings? You know, for your kids, getting them ready, getting them out school." I said, "No, but I will. I need dinner. Dinner will always be a priority." And if I'm traveling, you know, fine, I get it. But I will always commit to being there for my family as much and as and as frequently as possible. Um, and you know, I think kudos to the firm. Um, you know, everybody embraced that, but I demanded it. It wasn't something that I, you know, if he hadn't asked me, I would have insisted on anyway and set those expectations at the start. And I think that's what we, you know, to your point around flexibility, that's what we need to do. But we need to know, again, what's important to us and and how to prioritize that. Yeah, I agree. And that's one of the things we've all learned during this time is, you know, the world mm stretches and flexes and you figure out a way um, our firms have you know moved on and thrived and you can do it you know you can Absolutely. do it there's there's a way to do it and there's a way to let people be good humans and be good employees exactly. at the same time so I I think that's one of the gifts of of the pandemic um, yeah so now I want to do one of my, my favorite parts which is our lightning round and ask okay. you a couple quick questions um, get your your thoughts and responses the first is is there a great book that you've read or listened to recently? Yeah, I. it sounds really um, dweeby, but I love this book called Numbers Don't Lie. Um, it, I cannot pronounce his name, Vaclav something, but it's it's a wonderful book. Um, I've also, uh, you know, read a number of Gladwell's books, which I really enjoy. Um, I find, again, for the same reasons, it's like kind of tell you a little bit about um, an issue or a situation and look at the data, really reflect on what the data is telling you. And um, I guess I live and breathe that day in, day in and day out. <laughs> um, so again, I sound like a little bit of a, a nerve, but I, I think it was really powerful to just reflect on like what numbers don't lie. They really do tell you the story oftentimes and force you to look at. And there's, there's a bit in there about um, vaccines too, which I thought ah. was a pretty interesting uh, a pretty interesting bit about you know how it how it saves so much money by getting vaccinated, but I guess I won't get right. a lot. Yeah, no, no. I mean, numbers don't lie. That that's such an important theme for the last two years, yeah. and all on so many fronts, right? Yeah. On, you know, on Wall Street uh, for vaccines, for elections and politics. But um, maybe exactly. that's something everyone should read. Maybe that yeah. everyone should put that on their Christmas list. Um, so, what's your cell phone wallpaper? Uh, well, my kids and my dog, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, that is a consistent theme, I have to yeah. tell you. Yeah. Um, if you had a career other than private equity, what would it be? And I, you said it was at the limited, but I don't think that's what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been in medicine. I would have been a doctor. Um, you know, I'm still, to a certain extent, even though I didn't go that path, I love science. I love watching shows about science. I love reading science. Uh, I would have absolutely been in the medical field. And it probably would have made your dad feel a little more well, calm would have made had so, you done it. <laughs> it would have made him so happy. Um, so are you a dog or a cat person? A dog person. I've had so many animals. Um, I did actually have a cat who thought he was a dog and <laughs> loved that cat. Oh, gosh. But dog. Yeah. I yeah. love those goofy expressions unconditional love they're awesome yeah i couldn't agree more although we're, we are dog and cat people we like them both yeah. a lot but right now we have a dog um so 
I know you mentioned something earlier, but if there's another piece of advice that you might share with people, you know, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Yeah, do what you love. And I probably reuse that one over and over to the point of nausea for my kids, as well as, uh, you know, the people I work with, do what you love. I, you know, you have to do it every day, day in and day out. And maybe you don't love the entirety of it, but find pieces of it that you do love because you're just going to be better. You're going to be awesome if you do and you love it. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think that gets to the heart of, you know, be authentic, be yourself. Yeah. Um, if you're being authentic, you'll find the thing that you love. Even within something, a job you don't like, there'll be something that you can find to like. Yeah. Um, and my last question for you is, what's one thing we don't know about you or that we might be surprised to know? Well, I, um, I mentioned I love science, but I minored in art. And so art probably, well, it's indelibly part of who I am. Uh, right now, I'm actually learning how to uh, uh, throw clay on the pottery wheel. And I'm literally making a complete mess of it, but having <laughs> the best time. Yeah. Art That's is, fantastic. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a big part of being creative and just exploring and expressing yourself in a way that you don't necessarily do day to day, particularly when it's just focused on numbers or big strategy. Yeah. Wow. So it's a lot of fun. Well, that's Nessie. something I didn't know about you. So that's really interesting, and particularly since I'm I'm just back from Art Basel and I love art. And I always say I don't have artistic talents, but I actually think I do. I, I, I just have never explored them. So you've you've inspired me. Um, yeah. I've also thought Kate Mitchell and I have talked that we really ought to do a, a P.E. Win retreat to Art Basel. And um, a couple of our members actually were down there. I saw Sorry. some of our I saw some of our <laughs> P.E. Win members. Uh, while I was in, while I was at Art Basel. So I think we should do that. I think that would be absolutely. actually really fun. Yes, absolutely. And then we could also do even like wine and painting. That would be yes. fun. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. That would be very fun. Okay. I think, yeah. uh, I think we have to get that organized because that oh, would be a blast. Oh, that sounds great. Well, Andrea, this has been so much fun. I could speak to you for hours, but we both <laughs> have lots to do. Um, but it's been so nice to see you. I can't wait to thank see you, you in person and give you a hug, but I'm thrilled to see you. And uh, thank you again for being our guest today on Moments oh, That Made Her. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure spending time with you and so much in common. So I'm so excited and invigorated from this conversation. I look Great. forward to the next one. Me too. Me too. All right. Thanks again. Thanks, Kelly. Take care. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PE Win Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PE Win expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Wynn and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. 
Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.